I like this show. Very gay songs. I don't know what to say. Don't say anything. Tell me more about that. Am I alone? I don't understand it. I think women will hate her. Is this even worth arguing? I think you're one in a million, baby. Please, I'm overwhelmed with the style of you. They are so gung-ho. I don't want anyone to shoot Polly. You thought of this? If I leave this place one day, it will not be for more advertising. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. It doesn't anymore. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. We gear our conversations about the show around the conversation the show is having about gender, the patriarchy, and other things that make us mad. Well, I have to introduce this guy over here. First of all, I'm John Negroni, and I'm giving him a second because he's letting a bunch of doves, or maybe those are pigeons, out into the wild. It's Will Ashton. Hello. Will, you better look out because somebody's shooting those doves with a BB gun and a cigarette. Oh, no. It's Katie Stetzel. Oh, no. (laughs) Special guest, Katie Stetzel. Hey, Katie. Hello. Um, I'm honored to be the first woman that you have on this podcast. The first Mad Men Men woman. Yeah, I, th- I thought you guys really needed it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's <laughs> extremely yeah. true. Um, Mike couldn't make it. We're more than thrilled to have Katie here. Um, but Mike is going to be out this week, hopefully back next. Although we're trying to figure out how we're going to be scheduling um, around my honeymoon coming up. And so, well, I guess I guess it's going to be you and some Motley crew. I don't know. You don't need me. I mean, I sure hope not. Because I feel like every episode is just going to be like, you remember when Don did that? Yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, really. it's going to be yeah. more of like, hey, what do you think John thinks about this? I don't know, but it's probably wrong. <laughs> I guess so. That's I my guess. I'd rather not know, to be honest. Katie, we're so glad you're here. Because you're here because you are not only a woman, you are the TV editor over at The Young Folks, and you have been saying... Yes, John, it is okay for you to do a Mad Men podcast on the TV section of the young folks. So thank you for that, personally. We're, we're really honored you're letting us do this. Um, it is my honor for publishing it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I'm excited that we're reintroducing podcasts to the young folks again, I guess. We're doing it. Um, we're one by it, one. Yeah, it sounds like we have more in the pipeline, possibly, but... This was a good one to get us started. Will doesn't know about the next one that's coming up. I, have, I haven't had the heart oh, yeah. to tell him because it's not one he's going to care about. So I'll keep that. I barely okay. cared about it. <laughs> oh, boy. Is Whatever. It, is, it one, uh, is it one you're hosting, John, or is it just something I'm that not going to give any information about? away, but it's something that okay. I pitched to Allie and uh, the, our editor-in-chief. Okay. And um, excuse me, one of the first episodes, Katie was like, I want to do that episode. So <laughs> that's <whatever>. true. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait. That's probably um, the only episode I'm on, but we'll get. We got to find another. Uh, of, I, again, I don't want. I'm dancing around. It, I don't want to say, but we got to find another one where we can get you because, yeah, especially on Mad Men Men because I feel like we're going to need your perspective quite a lot. Um, but you've been watching Mad Men for the first time, right? Very first time, except the one time I watched it in college. Um. College was when I really started watching TVs, and my two go-tos at the time were Lost and 24. Those were oh, wow. 
yeah Super those were like shows. my yeah especially 24 it's that very serialized um television you know mm-hmm. um and also i think maybe both of those were also considered part of the golden age of television maybe um as well as Mad Men. so Mad Men was like the next logical thing to start watching except i watched the first episode and hated it so i stopped Ooh. there <laughs> yeah because you i i've heard not heard but i've seen you kind of chat a little bit about this in like the young folks slack about like mm-hmm. your reaction to the first episode so like tell us what tell us what you think because you're, you're going through it again right and you've been watching the episodes mm-hmm. What what do you think of Mad Men so far? Because we're going to talk about episode nine, but before we do, I I really mm. want to know what you think of the show right now. Um, well, when I restarted it because you were starting this podcast, and I was like, they need a female perspective on it. Let me get, let me get caught up. Um, Our hero. The I had the same reaction to the first episode that I did in college. It is like agonizing and cartoonish, which you guys brought up in that first podcast episode so you didn't need me there um so i was like oh no what did i get myself into again i don't know if i can stomach this it's like i I just like i get it like i get that it's the 60s whatever but it was just like in your face and i was like i don't i don't want to sit here and watch this but we're nine episodes in now and it's gotten a lot better um I mean, it's definitely still there. I think episode eight, actually, which I actually just watched eight and nine a couple hours ago. Um, I think episode eight was my favorite episode so far. Nice. Yeah. I've, I've just been finding it a lot more funny lately, especially episode eight and episode nine. Um, yeah. Like moments where I've like really laughed a lot out loud. Um and but there are still scenes where like all the guys are gathered together and they're talking and then the scene will end and i'll just be like i hate everyone on the show because <laughs> they're uh, terrible i totally yeah there's so many moments like that especially in the first season and you and yeah we can't mm-hmm. say that it totally goes away it doesn't really but yeah. i i really like how what you said there i really like the idea that like other people might be watching the show for the first time and watching it with us and like maybe their perception of the show as being like overly serious is hopefully going away at this point, because that is, I think the secret weapon of what I think makes this show as good as it becomes. And that's the fact that it isn't too serious. Like it actually is pretty hilarious at times. It's not a comedy, Mm -hmm. but yeah, even in this episode, which we'll talk about quite a bit, I think there, there are just so many moments where it's just like, I mean, it was directed by Paul Feig first episode Mm -hmm. directed by Paul Feig. I think I saw Will's, you know, ears perk up at the the mention of uh, his favorite film director of all time. That's a lie. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know how much you wanted to get into the Feig uh, in this uh, conversation of ours. Uh, this is the only episode of, that he directed, right, of Mad Men? I believe so, but I will double check that. And I think yeah. that when it comes to him, you know, I, I respect Paul Feig quite a bit, even though I dislike a lot of the things he's done. I like a lot of the things he's done, too. Sure. Um, Bridesmaids being one I of mean, them with also John Hamm. But sure. Freaks and Geeks, I, you know mm-hmm. what? He made it. He freaks and geeks. One of my favorite shows of that era. I gotta say, I don't know if Katie yeah. and you are a fan. Oh yeah, Will, you never really got into freaks and geeks until I never finished it. Yeah. I just think I watched it too late. Like I watched it. I started to watch it during the pandemic, and I was already like a decade older than all the characters. 
And like, I could recognize it was pretty good. I was just like, I'm just not in the place in my life right now where I'm really connecting to this. I think I should just watch this when I was in high school, which is a, a me problem. That's not a show problem, but I, I do recognize that the show, I mean, it's not really my thing, like I said, but I, I can you. see the, the appeal of it for yeah. sure. I watched- as far as Feig is concerned. Yeah. I, I did watch Freaks and Geeks when I was like in middle school. <laughs> like, so I, I get what you're saying. Like I, I watched it way, way early. And so that definitely has a lot to do with it. Yeah. I, I mean, a, as far as fee. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I had a history teacher in high school who showed us episodes uh, of Freaks and Geeks in a sociology class. Perfect. That was my way in. <laughs> I would say, I hope, was that a good thing? Like, did you actually like it? Or is that more of like a, I would never forgive this teacher as long as I live? No, I liked it. Heck I, yeah. I don't remember. I don't know if I watched it all after seeing those episodes i think i probably watched the rest of it in college i think for me it was because it was on abc family now freeform or whatever um i i double i double checked confirmed paul feig did only direct one episode of mad men and it's the one we're about to talk about and around this time he was also direct he directed an episode of 30 rock that same year i didn't know that and he was mm-hmm. uh, just a couple years away from directing his first episode of parks and recreation which uh good for him so shoot yeah. well i was yeah, well, I was just going to say, I mean, before we get into the episode proper, uh, I do think, generally speaking, Feig, as far as his directing career goes, he is better at TV than film. I do like Bridesmaids. I think Spy is probably his best film. I know you and I, John, we disagree about this. I will this, never like fine. Spy. Sorry, uh, I don't know if Katie likes that movie, but... Sure. Mm-mm. I don't know where she stands on Spy. I, uh, where do you stand on Spy, Katie? Uh, never seen it, but I love Bridesmaids. Right. So I'm happy to hear that you haven't All seen right. it because you didn't have to. What about Simple Favor? <laughs> that one I do like. I, I haven't seen that one. I actually, I would say Simple well, Favor. I was gonna is say, fun to watch. yeah. Uh, well, Simple Favor is probably the most comparable, I guess, to his work on Mad Men. Certainly, even though sure. that's not a period piece, there the the style of it is very evocative. The sense of, of humor, you know, the, of it's the drama, right? Mm-hmm. His touches are uh, in this yeah, I mean, episode. I can say sure. that. Yeah, but I mean, I will say, I, I generally think when Feig is restrained as far as like the limitations of TV are concerned, I think he works a little bit better. I think like his work in the office showcases that when like sure. he can't allow himself to go like two out two hours over the runtime, like with Ghostbusters, uh, like kind of yeah. getting a little bit, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, well, I mean, any of his, I think, feature film comedy, certainly like The Heat, uh, uh, that that was a big problem, I think, of that film. It just like he I think he can just not really have the restraint to, you know, kind of pull himself back. I think TV allows him to have that uh, restraint. Cause he is very good with actors. I think this episode showcases that pretty well. Well, can I, I start? He is, as can, I, can I pivot gone. then, Will? I want to start with a question for Katie here sure. about the because this is a Betty Draper episode. And this has long been a point of contention, and that has something to do, I think, with Paul Feig, you know, his ability to work with actors. There are a lot of people who say January Jones is not a good actress, and I do not agree with those people. I think she's a good actress. I think she's been in some roles I don't think are very good, but I do think that she's good in this show. There are people who say this is the episode that kind of makes or breaks people's opinion on how she performs in the show. So, Katie, overall at this point, do you are do you like january jones like what she's doing with this character like where are you at right now especially after this episode in particular yeah um i really i really liked her in this episode i'm not sure i'm remembering my opinion of her before this episode um 
mostly because I watched the first uh, seven episodes maybe a couple weeks ago, so I'm having a hard time remembering. But this episode, um, I fi- I felt like we were finally like really focusing on her, right? Um, and I, I just felt like I related to her so much in some of in some of her like what she's going through this episode too. Um, I mean, not like exactly, but just like the general feeling of, you know, finding yourself stuck somewhere where you didn't think you were going to be stuck and then being reminded of the thing that you wanted to do, but then not sure how to proceed with it. And that moment, I don't, do you guys go like chronological when talking about the episode or can I just jump in anywhere? Yeah. I mean, it's okay to go wherever, uh, I usually I'll just like go through it thing by thing, but no rules. I mean, uh, please. OK, so that scene right at like towards the end when um, I forget what his name is, but basically the guy who's like directing her in the the Coca-Cola ads. When Ronnie Gitridge. That's, her- that's why my display name is Johnny Gitridge. But no, oh, got Will, it. Did, okay. Will didn't laugh when he <laughs> saw it. Yeah, he's, he's not that um, nice. He makes me work like for he- it. I mean, I didn't find it funny either, but okay. Harsh but fair. Um, so anyway, like when he tells her essentially that they're moving on, you know, and and he's like, but the good news is, is that you have two good photos to like go on. And she's just, when he, when he walks away, she starts like crying, but also trying to hold back her tears. Right. That moment, like. If I was, if I wasn't sold on her before that, which I'm not saying I wasn't, but if I wasn't, that moment I thought was probably her best moment in terms of like character and 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 acting, probably. Yeah, because I think that's like a one shot too, and she is just like maintaining that confliction, that mixed emotion that she's trying to suppress, and it's like such a good summary of like what that character is like i don't know what you think will but i i I think that with january jones it's like people call the performance kind of wooden and people complain that she's Mm -hmm. not very likable and i i'm just like it's her character i i think the acting is there i think the actor is getting that across in the right ways but you know i mean i think we have noticed a lot with like prestige television that there is with certain viewers. I'm not going to say all viewers, but certainly a lot of outspoken viewers. There's an inherent sort of sexism towards female characters. I mean, certainly like the way that Skylar on Breaking Bad was treated was just, I mean, what Amanda Gunn had to deal with towards the end of that show's run was just, I mean, just truly despicable. Uh, and I mean, I, I don't think it was quite as bad uh, for um, oh, what's uh, what's the name of the actress for, that played um, Mrs. Soprano? I'm, I'm blanking on uh, her name. I, unfortunately, I'm blanking on her too. I mean, I remember Carmela. I'll never forget Carmela, but uh, I'll look it up. Carmela, yeah, but um, Eddie Falco. I don't think she got Edie quite Falco, as Falco. Sorry, yeah, Eddie Falco. Eddie Falco, yeah. Sorry, um, I don't think she got quite as bad. But I, I just know that like people tend to, you know, like they they'll like dismiss the the wife characters and they show it's like oh like yeah. they're the nags or whatever like you know like they're kind of the ones that are like trying to prevent the male character from having fun and i think certainly I, one thing i've really appreciated uh both times i saw this season especially with this episode is how they allow betty to really get drawn out and bring so much sympathy to her character i don't know if she ever received that treatment that um 
you know, in the later seasons that unfortunately she Anna did. Gunn received with okay, absolutely that's a shame. she did. Uh, yeah, but I, I just think the, the the beauty of like a show like this is that we can really explore the inner life of a character like Betty Draper, someone who is so innately complex, someone who isn't easy to read, and I think that is where I think the like quote unquote wooden criticism gets thrown is that like Betty is someone who is so intuitive as a character a lot of her processing the way she processes a lot of things very internal like you can clearly like see her thought process but she kind of comes about things in a very sort of like uh unspoken but you know like you can see the gears turning a lot in her head and i I can see how some people might want to misread that performance as being like drawn in and like wooden as you suggested and i do think there are some um uh, performances from January Jones, like certainly I think like unknown and like the X-Men first class performance she gave that weren't great, but I don't really blame her per se. I think those are just the, 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 the roles that she got in those films were just yeah. not great to begin with. And so I, I took no issue with really her performance. And I, I mean, maybe I might've been a bit catty about it towards the beginning of this podcast, but that's something I've really worked hard in these later episodes to push against. Cause I, I think her performance is really outstanding in this episode in particular. This is a big episode for her. It's one that people regard as the Betty Draper episode, uh, one of her best. And so it's kind of amazing that it came in the first season. We should remind the listeners too. I know we've talked about it, but you know, this character wasn't as fleshed out when Matthew Weiner wrote the original scripts. He had to really create the character of Betty with January Jones in mind in order to get her to sign on to the show. And I think that, uh, you know, the show is all the better for January Jones's contribution in that way of, of pushing Matthew Weiner to punch up the character writing for her uh, as the, the wife of Don Draper, as the mother of these kids and as her own person. I think it really works out the way that the the show kind of handles her going forward. But this is a bit of a turning point episode. I know earlier when we've been um, kind of talking about how the, the show has been kind of changing over the last few episodes, like really since Babylon, Mad Men has been sort of like moving on from like establishing its world and starting to push down the dominoes of the characters. The characters are starting to sort of break out of their sort of predetermined rules at this point. And I think this episode is very emblematic of that. So let's get into it. So, okay, this episode starts with a very kind of kind of trippy sequence where, you know, Betty is uh, kind of, she's out with the kids. And I say trippy because the, the directing in this is kind of weird, but basically we see this neighbor like let it loose a bunch, bunch of pigeons. And, uh, Sally is like, mom, look, you know, and they, they look up and I don't know what you all think of this, but like just the part where Sally has like her hand to her heart and she's just like overacting it. And like Bobby looks yeah. like he's being directed <laughs> completely. Um, oh. mm-hmm. It's really weird. And I, I've never known if it was it on purpose or was it just Paul Feig being like, whatever. I took it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's possible that it was just Feig who, I mean, as we've kind of established, I think he's probably a weaker director than some of the other filmmakers who've come on this show, like compared to like Alan Taylor and Phil Abraham and Tim Hunter. I don't think he's quite as adept. But I, I didn't really take issue with this scene as much because while it was weird when I was first watching it, when you see like the later scenes, like the way this is sort of evocative of her coke shoot and like there's like this very like idyllic 
setting that they have her in, like with the picnic table and like the tie is like thrown over the guy's shoulder, like so. And it's like, it is a source of real quality that's supposed to mirror real life, even though it's not real life. And it's like also not really supposed to be completely real, but it's supposed to be real enough that you want to buy into it. And I, I felt like it was kind of a neat little parallel to that scene whether intentional or not that's how i looked at it that the the whole stuff with the the pigeons and the opening scene and then the mid scene because we come back to it like midway through and then it closes us out as well this is probably one of my favorite aspects of the episode because it just felt it just felt so weird I felt like I was sort of getting this like surrealism also in episode eight um, that I don't know if I've noticed in the first seven episodes. Um, it especially in, in this one, it reminds me a lot of um, uh, Six Feet Under, which I've been watching for the first time um, the past like couple months or so. I've which, never seen Six Feet Under. I'm so sorry. It's so good. It's so good, but it's obviously about a family that runs a um, funeral home. So because it's dealing with like death uh, and life, um, there's a lot of like surreal scenes sort of like the one that's in this episode. So it just reminded me of that. And I really liked it, but it was, I just thought it, it was very, it was very bizarre just the way it's like edited together and the way it's we come back shot. to it. Like when Polly yeah. leaps up for the dove, well, it looks weird. Yeah. But not yeah. only that, but like the color grading too. It's like very like oversaturated. It's like a kid's which I feel memory. makes it comparable. But it makes it I think comparable to like that Coke ad too, because everything's just like overlit, like too bright. Like the grass is much greener than we've seen it before. The sky is much bluer than we've seen it before. It, you know, like as you mentioned, like everyone has these like idyllic looks on their face. Almost reminds me a bit of like the beginning of like blue velvet or something like that <laughs> in a weird way. See, I was thinking of uh, Yeah, Drive. I was kind of taken by, uh, well, Lynch there, you know, it, it is a very, I, I hate the overuse of the word Lynchian, but maybe here it's a little bit more we'll have appropriate. To allow it. Maybe not. I don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, and I think that's a good point. Uh, both of you have made really good points. Um, well, in particular, you know, I've always co- I've always considered, you know, obviously the the coke shoot is supposed to be referencing directly like the irony, right, of Betty literally like, you know, she sees the modeling gig as her chance to sort of get out of the housewife sort of role that she doesn't necessarily like. I don't, I don't think that she thinks it's bad necessarily. Like, I don't think she likes it very much, but I think her character is more of like. I could have done other stuff like I could have, you know, for her, it's more of like a, like the line that Jim Hobart says, like, you'll die wondering. That's kind of like where she's at, like wondering, like, could she have made it um, if she had made like different decisions? It, it kind of reminded me a little bit, too, of like a movie like Everything Everywhere All at Once, you know, which really kind of gets into that in terms of its story. Um, if anybody's listening, hasn't seen that movie, I highly recommend. But I think, yeah, like the, it, that irony of like the idyllic lifestyle being sort of advertised as the one that she lives and she's the one who's modeling it both in real life and in the ad. It's like, there are just so many layers to that. And you can tell, I forgot to mention that um, this is uh, a Matthew Weiner script because it's got a lot of that weirdness to it, uh, but also co-written by Chris Provenzano, who uh, did the last episode of Hobo Code. So Katie, I think that speaks to what you were talking about of like kind of picking up on like the more surrealist stuff that definitely is Matthew Weiner's MO. Uh, my, some of my favorite episodes of the entire show are Matthew Weiner originals, really. Uh, but I do want to mention, um, in terms of the, the story, 
Maybe I'll let you get into this, Will, because I know the the book we've been reading for this, the Mad Men Carousel, uh, talks about how this is based on a true story, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll pull up the quote because it's. Uh, I think you're talking about the one that's mentioned towards the end of this chapter. Yeah, because um, it, it it talks about basically that like it's the same idea where like yeah. somebody's daughter, yeah, one of the writers of the show had. So yeah, yeah Robin Veith, I believe, is the the staff writer, and uh, to quote Weiner. Uh, her mother shot the pigeons. It was a very different scenario in the sense that A, it was a pistol, B, her mother didn't smoke, and C, they were latch kit, latchkey kids. And she had an older sister, and it was one of these things where the dog had gotten into trouble, and the neighbor had threatened the dog, and the girls were losing sleep over it, and finally confessed to the mother, who was raising them by herself. And the mother went out one morning and just started firing. And I just thought when I heard it, I still get chills thinking about it. This is the greatest act of like motherhood and frustration. It's really fierce lioness behavior, but it's also just like, I've got to get somebody, which I mean, maybe that is jumping a little bit ahead, I guess, as far as like what will be uh, referenced uh, in this episode. But yeah, I mean, there is this kind of blurring, I guess, certainly like the show uh, tackles a lot of things as far as like the way we remember things as opposed to reality. I think that this is such a kind of bizarre scenario from a writer's real life that is rooted in reality, but there is also maybe something that is kind of heightened because we're telling the story and then subsequently funneling that story into this uh, already kind of heightened show. Uh, but I, I mean, the fact that it is based on a, a true scenario does kind of make it even more sort of wonderful at the same time. Yeah, it has that stranger than fiction quality, you know, and uh, we are jumping around a little bit. Maybe we'll do it a little bit differently than we usually do because we probably don't have time to do a case by case. But uh, I'm fine with that because I think that this is one of those episodes that it really comes together well. Like it comes together well in a way that's a little bit more elegant than a couple of the past episodes. Like this is probably the most cohesive episode, in my opinion, that we've gotten since Babylon. Um, And uh, I don't know if you would totally agree with that, Will, because I think you were a bigger fan of like Red in the Face uh, than I am uh, overall, right? Or am I imagining that? Well, I mean, when I first saw the season, like in my teenage years, this was one of my favorite okay. episodes, or at least this is the one of the ones that stood out to me the most. I mean, certainly, I think, like we were talking about before, that shot uh, that Katie was referencing of uh, Betty, you know, like holding in her tears, but just, you know, unable to really control it, the sense that like she's really locked in uh, by decisions that are kind of out of her control. But also, you have this ending shot with her with the cigarette in her mouth, shooting the BB right. gun at the pigeons. The it's such a memorable and kind of darkly funny image that I just remember very vividly. And as Katie was suggesting, mm. was one of those key moments where I just remember the like humor and irony of the show working really well. The other uh, good example is, uh, I'm going to have to pull up the song, but the the lyrics of it, are kind of ironic because it goes back to um, what Don says, right? Like Don was he kind calls of her an, angel. her to an angel and that like, yeah. she's like this kind of like perfect woman who's almost selfless in everything she's doing. And that, you know, obviously for her in this episode, that's more of like a choice as far as like kind of choosing to be selfless and right. almost in a way kind of spiting her mother by like going into motherhood, but also like, kind of falling in line with it which is getting into the complexity of it but i'm jumping way ahead no it's fine uh, I, I have to admit we can get it off our chest because i, I don't want to miss it and i think that i think what's brilliant about that closing image is we've spent not just this episode but the entire first season not seeing the real betty and i think this is the real betty the first time we see her with kind of the walls down right like and the way that she views herself like the real sort of like 
what she would do for her kids. And, you know, out there in the nightgown, you know, it, middle of the day, like doesn't care. Uh, not that same sort of like pristine sort of like I'm in an advertisement kind of personality that she kind of wears because of the social pressures. But instead, it's her with the cigarette hanging out a little just being a badass. And I, and I just think that that is like the Betty Draper that's like kind of hiding underneath the Betty Hofstadt, if we can say. Um, so I love I love that ending moment. I, I think it's like one of my favorite ways to one of my favorite uh, endings to any of the episodes in this whole season. Uh, by by far, uh, especially with that song for sure. So the Betty storyline obviously very strong. We have other stuff going on in this episode. The main plot here really follows Don being courted by Jim Hobart, who is an executive at McCann Erickson. McCann Erickson is based on a real advertising agency that represented huge names like Coca Cola and Pan Am, which get referenced in this episode. And with the whole the whole seduction kind of technique that Jim Hobart is putting on Don is essentially like they're at Fiorello in a Broadway play early in this episode, second scene of the episode. And Jim Jim's kind of pitch basically is like, hey, you know, you're you're done with the farm leagues, right? I think that kind of probably hits Don pretty pretty smartly because, you know, we've established at this point that he grew up on a farm, right? And uh Jim is kind of like, I think, calling to that sort of appeal that Don has is as a uh, self-made man, right? Like he sees himself as like, okay, like what's the next step? Do I stay in Sterling Cooper and make it bigger? You know, like, is that the more impressive thing? Or do I go to McCann Erickson and I kind of like cheat code my way to that sort of success? Uh, Katie, I'm curious what you think of this because, you know, I, I think like, especially like watching the show for the first time, um, or like past the first episode, if you think that, uh, what, what do you think of Don's ultimate decision here? Because ultimately he decides to stay at Sterling and Cooper. Why do you think that is? Okay. We'll admit that it took me a second to figure out what was going on in this plot line. Um, I was like, what the, what the hell does this gym person want? Um, I eventually caught on that. He's basically courting him to come to his company, right? Right. And Betty even says it's like he wants to sleep with either of us and Don doesn't like either, you know, option. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, once I finally figured out what was going on, I enjoyed this plot line, um, especially with how it does connect to Betty's plot line, because what eventually happens with like Betty's potential, like future modeling career um is is that it it was never really there because he was jim was just kind of using her to get to dawn a little bit right scumbag yeah and so that so i i don't know how i feel about don draper to be honest at by the end of by the end of this episode oh we didn't mention this with betty but she lies to dawn at the end about um her about what happens mm-hmm. with the modeling and, and it's he hard knows, to blame her you know yeah and he knows that she lied um i forget where i'm going with this um so but i i was like i don't know if i can blame don either because he was also being used in a way um yeah but I also, but he's also a jerk he's so mean yeah he <laughs> definitely so controlling. made a decision I don't know. I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, but like it was definitely it's a definitely it's it complicated my view of Don. I f- I feel like because 
it was the like the second he saw the pictures of Betty, it was when he made his decision, knowing right. that knowing that by staying, um, she was not going to continue in that line of work, probably. So he made that decision, knowing that it was probably gonna crush her like dreams. So that yeah. was shitty. But at the same time, the other guy was just using Betty anyway. So anyway, I liked how the two storylines converged to complicate their relationship. I don't know. Well, yeah, and it converges with Pete, too, right? Because Pete yeah. ultimately punches Ken, you know, seemingly out of Peggy's honor. Right. You can view it as like, oh, Don is rejecting it because, you know, Jim Hobart is disrespecting his wife. But I think in both cases, no, they're just being selfish. You know, Don is doing it because he wants Betty to be the perfect mother to his kids because he has a bunch of baggage he puts on her and, Mm -hmm. you know, lords over her in an extremely unhealthy dynamic. And in Pete's case, he is, you know, his ego is bruised because he is now ashamed that he slept with Peggy. Uh, because other people are making fun of her and he's just ultimately a scumbag. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, there was like a split second where I was cheering Pete on and then I was like, he's just doing this for himself though. And can I tell you about Pete? Um, your favorite actor, character of the show? No, <laughs> <Nope>. but, <laughs> oh, Pete. but I do have complicated feelings about Pete because of the actor, Vincent. I don't know how to say his last name, but I think it's Cartizer. I, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Cartizer. Okay. Cartizer. So like it's really interesting because I know him from the sh- TV show Angel, which is the spinoff show of Buffy right, and yeah. his character in Angel is very controversial. I don't know if you've talked about Vincent at all. Or if any of you all know this. I've never um, watched Angel. No, we, we need the inside scoop. Yeah. Mm. So his character yeah, on Angel here. is like very controversial. A lot of people don't like him. But I loved his character <laughs> on Angel because he's very sympathetic. People, I just, I just don't think people had enough empathy. He's like a very tragic character, like what happens to him um, and what he goes through. And yeah, he's like kind of a, an annoying bitch for like season three and season four of angel but at the same time like you have to take in to account like everything he's he's like a victim through the whole the whole show essentially um so i had a lot of like feelings about his character and about the actor to portraying him um and just in a very like sympathetic way so <laughs> i feel like some of that is like transferring itself onto onto pete a little bit and every time i feel it happening i'm like no i don't like pete except there are some moments where you start feeling sorry for him or at least understanding like why he is the way he is which makes it which makes him a much more interesting character to watch but essentially like yeah no he's he sucks (laughs) (laughs) especially in this episode too i was like god I was like, Peggy, please, please just give up on it. I think, I think <laughs> she, I think it's tease that she has at this point. I mean, I can't speak to stuff that yeah. I know that happens later, but I think in that, in the last episode when she's like, you know, shitting a tear about him, the stuff that he says, mm-hmm. I think that's like a sign, you know, that she's a little bit like, eh, fuck this guy. 
Yeah. I hope I hope she moves on quickly because I'm tired of watching it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I looked up to and uh, I know, well, you got plenty to say, but uh, I, I looked up like what, what has Vincent Cartizer been up to lately? And uh, not not much in terms of uh, film and TV, but well, there are a few things he was in. Yeah, he, he plays uh, he, he plays the scarecrow in the Teen Titans show on HBO Max, which I didn't know. Right. And which uh, that's uh, a source of controversy because apparently he's been pretty hard to work with on that show. I've heard that. I think yeah. they basically either wrote him out or that they, they were trying to like figure out a way to minimize his screen role. I, I don't think he's been like harassing anybody so far as I know. I could be wrong. But I don't think he's like doing anything totally nefarious, but apparently he's just like a hard person to work with. I mean, Which you can kind of tell. I, I, I right? mean, I think he's, you see him in action. Oh it's no, like, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, you you hope for the I, best. I right? mean, like he just. I mean, he is someone who I think is kind of perfectly cast as Pete because he seems yeah. like someone who is very eager to please. I think he actually had kind of like an early start to acting. Like he was either like a child star, or like a teen star. No, he's, he was doing something like, like the nineties. Someone, yeah, right. But I just feel like there is something inherent to him as an actor where I think he always wants to be kind of taken seriously, much like Pete. Uh, I don't know if he's done anything quite as bad or as scuzzy as what Pete has done throughout this show, particularly in this first season. You can only but speculate, right? I don't know. I, I yeah, but I think he he that like kind of like frustrated desire to like prove himself is probably inherent to uh, the actor. Maybe I'm just speaking out of turn. Maybe I'm reading way too much into this guy that. I have no uh, relationship to personally, but I, I just kind of get that vibe from what I've read about him. Sure. One of my favorite Pete moments in this episode <laughs> was when um, they're in that meeting at the end after the laxatives, laxatives thing. Mm-hmm. And um, after like those other two guys come in and congratulate them and Pete stands up and is like, so we're done. <laughs> and Don is like, no, <laughs> sit back down. <laughs> Right. I died. I absolutely died laughing. (laughs) What what are the great like Mad Men moments where it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. This is one of those shows, you know, where it can be funny. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially because that scene has such an underdog quality to it, because it is like that moment where like, you know, uh, Bert comes into the office. It seems like he's going to cut them down the size for, you know, being insubordinate and like kind of going against the thing. And then he comes in to praise him and actually, you know, is genuinely impressed. So is Roger and inspired. eventually Don for kind of pull right inspired, you know, and like nicely done and all this stuff. And there's a congratulatory moment like Pete's feeling high and mighty. He stands up and he's like getting ready to control the room. And then Don instantly cuts him down the side, yeah, yeah. as Katie mentioned. And it's just like. Well, but also like nobody seems like a boy to a man to a boy. Nobody Mm -hmm. seems to like make the connection though that like Nixon's in a bunch of ads and is going to be associated with Secor laxatives. (laughs) You know, like that is kind of like the downfall of the strategy, which I find I find the whole thing kind of weird. What he and Harry cook up, but it is a very sort of like you know screenwriter kind of thing. You know, like the whole thing where he's just like telling a story that's seemingly like random, you know, it's like Mamie's funeral, the Dalmatian or whatever. And it's just him and Harry goofing off. And then like having that revelation, it's like, wait a minute, what if we, and then the whole time well, hearing that, I was like, that's mm-hmm. such a screenwriter thing. Like there's no real connection. That How did sure. that make you think of no way? Come on. Well, I mean, that's why I kind of admire about it. That has kind of like a weird, like 
80s college movie kind of like snob versus slobs kind of thing <laughs> yeah, where like cut-ups. they kind of stick it to the man in a way by kind of going against it but uh, like ultimately kind of works like uh against all odds and it's just you know it feels very almost sort of reminiscent of those kind of like college movie mentality i guess without you know hopefully some of the uglier stuff in those movies but agree uh yeah um i I'm hated a- it because yeah. i hated i hated just like the the like gleeful nostalgia on pete's face as he was talking about it i was like mm, you don't deserve anything good stop talking and also <laughs> yeah like he is He's also just automatically the worst for like cheating on Alice and Brie. <laughs> every time I remember that he's every time I remember that he's married to Alice and Brie, her character, I'm like, oh my yeah, god, not the real why? person. Thankfully, she's married to Dave. How? Franco. Yeah. Like what? Like what? What are you doing? <laughs> Trudy, right? Trudy, yeah, Trudy, that's her name. Trudy, Trudy yeah. Vogel. But um, yeah, so. The P storyline here, pretty standard. I think if there's a criticism of Lob at season one, I think it is Pete's arc because it kind of goes in circles at times, I think. And this is one of those moments. Um, I will say that like watching him Ken watching him and Ken fight and then like Paul's kind of breaking it up, and then also the moment where Don and Roger kind of like Oh Don <laughs> yeah, and Rod, yeah. are in the foreground are just like not caring at all it's just such a 60s thing but in a good way i guess like it's just very yeah yeah i love that they're like you know the way that the shots framed the uh, credit to feeg in this scenario like they're like the the adults in the room because they're like you know the, they're they're made to look like taller so it's like you're seeing like these like kids in the playground fighting and then just the two adults in the room just like yeah. basically ignoring it like, i guess or just like yeah oblivious to you and just like yeah you want to get lunch like all right i forget exactly what they say to each other but oh, just yeah, dropping them off I, the I, station. I thought that yeah exactly yeah I, the framing of that shot i thought was very inspired definitely to quote roger definitely agree definitely agree um we can talk about uh, i want to talk about the peggy plot in this i think it's really good because the whole season at this point has been building up to really like a lot of things with peggy um her she has really three core dynamics in this season. The one she has with Don, the one she has with Pete, and I think the most interesting one, the one that she has with Joan. And we've already kind of talked about sort of like what's going on with her and Joan throughout this season. And what I like about this episode a lot is it really confirms, I think, the motivation of Joan's character. So I kind of want to get your opinion on this, Katie, because, you know, I've sort of championed the idea or the theory or whatever of that, Joan herself is like not jealous of Peggy. Like, you know, and I think Christine Hendricks has even said something to that effect. And I think that like the idea of the Peggy Joan sort of tension in this season is that Joan wants to, she feels like a little bit of like an ownership of Peggy. She's genuinely looking out for her, but she's also very arrogant in thinking that she knows what's best for Peggy. And Peggy has that convergence like we've already talked about with Betty, right? They're both women who don't want to be in this birdcage. You know, Joan was put into the birdcage like episodes ago with Roger, right, in Babylon. And I think that like with Peggy and Joan, like they're sort of like dust up in this episode. It's it's probably my favorite scene of the whole episode when Peggy is just like competing, like not competing, but like holding her own against Joan and just not letting her walk all over her. 
and like having this sort of mentality of the, like, I need to stick up for myself. And like, I don't care what you say about, you know, my weight gain or anything like that. I am just going to, you know, put out there like my accomplishments and my pride in my work. But Kitty, what, what do you think? Because I, I think some people look at this and they're just like, Joan's just jealous or like Joan is just, you know, being, you know, a bitch. And I, I think there's something way deeper going on. But what do you, what do you think? Um, I, I really enjoyed their dynamic this episode. I think um, this episode also feels like one of the first times it starts really challenging the era probably probably um I, this was i noticed this in betty's um storyline too when she's talking to the psychologist um when she says stuff about like um something about having to get married but then like what happens after that so she's sort of challenging the idea of like being a housewife and also a nuclear family and the status quo of you know society essentially and with um peggy and joan i sort of get the same feeling because joan is like i feel like she's i don't know how long she's been working there or even in like the professional world um but it seems we like get she, an idea later in the show like later in the series but i don't want to give it away it's okay. a while okay so it seems like she has moved up in a sense in the professional world and at this company to a somewhat high position. Um, and she knows how she knows what it was that, you know, got her there and thinks that with Peggy, it will be the same thing. Um, but Peggy's more, she's not like traditionally attractive like Jonah's and, um, also doesn't seem to like, want she doesn't want what joan thinks she wants and when she especially when she questions like when peggy says that she really does want to like pursue the writing and joan is like wait that's what this is about is really just the writing um so like peggy is having aspirations beyond what joan thinks she should be having um and so i so i feel like this episode was really challenging a lot of um the 60s era essentially and them coming up against each other towards the end of this episode felt like basically the those two ideas clashing together and i really enjoyed that yeah especially because it like it just adds another dimension to joan you know she's not just this like stereotypical queen bee it's like there's so many moments where you can just tell like joan is genuine like she just genuinely is uh, trying to look out for the people in the office because you just get the sense that she's seen, you know, this office spit people out. And her flaw is that she looks down on Peggy. She's condescending. Like she just doesn't, you know, sort of view Peggy as a fully realized person. And that edges into the way she treats her instead of recognizing, you know, listening to Peggy and paying attention to who she really is. But, you know, it, it does come from a sympathetic place, even if it comes from like a kind of like a false place. Right. So, uh, I don't know if you had something to add to that, Will, because I, we, we gotta get, we gotta get to Sally Draper. We got Sally Draper stuff to talk about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I find myself, I guess, somewhat critical of, uh, Matt Zoller's uh, 
uh, read of the, the, the episode because I think he can tend to kind of simplify the dynamic between uh, Peggy and Joan. As we mentioned, I think there is so much complexity of them. And I think he can often, uh, well, I, th- I think the book often enriches my reading and understanding of these episodes. I think he can kind of simplify their dynamics just like, there can only be one woman in the office and they kind of, you know, bring out the worst to each other. And I mean, and we, and to, to be simplify fair to, his writing. To be fair to Matt Zoller's yeah. sites, I think that like the, he was writing this right, like right after watching the episodes for the first time in the moment, like when they were coming out. So like we got to be a little um, bit fair, right? Because I, I, no, I think this one was like that case. I think he I think he said in the earlier seasons that he was actually writing these fresh for the book, if I recall okay. correctly. In that case, I rescind my uh, statement. So, Sorry. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I do think like we were, we were saying that like Jones, uh, you know, she is kind of lording her power over Peggy, like, seeing the vulnerability, the weakness of her in these scenarios where, you know, obviously like her script, her skirt is ripped. Like she's in this position where she can, you know, uh, be lorded over after having a few weeks of triumph, you know, being in positions in power, that Joan never really got to, to do getting in the office with the guys in which she was never really allowed to. And she is using that to be very cutting and harsh in a way that, you know, is just incredibly brutal. But, you know, I mean, Peggy, uh, what I love about uh, Elizabeth uh, Moss's performance in this is that, you know, she can hold her own, like she can dish it back out. But like every time we see her face, there is this like tearful look in her eyes. She brings such a vulnerability to this performance where, you know, she is holding her own and she is, uh, you know, giving it back out to uh, Joan. But, you know, she is still, you know, very scarred, very emotionally hurt by everything that's being said. And I, I just kind of love that her performance is able to communicate the complexity of uh, her uh, emotions in this moment, you know, able to be, you know, uh, res- reliant enough to, um, you know, hold her own. And like I said, but also just, you know, clearly, you know, so bruised by this work environment that she is an outsider in still even weeks, uh, you know, into this business. Uh, and yeah, I, I really, uh, really like how this scene was played out. I just to add to that. And also what I was saying earlier, I think I just love how complicated it makes the dynamics between the female characters. Cause, um, starting like the first episode you can really (laughs) it's like so much the guys are just so sexist that you just want to cheer for all of the females and they all feel like they're on the you know the same level there was an episode maybe like three or four i don't really remember but it's like when um it's the birthday party episode uh in that new okay three um that was one of the first moments uh, while watching these first nine episodes that I felt like the female characters got more complicated because they were looking down on like their new neighbor for being um, a single mom. And so while they experience sexism to a point, they also have their own like issues with um, the way they view other women and, and all of that, which makes this vastly more interesting to watch um and i think that's just further exemplified in this episode between joan and and peggy yeah couldn't agree more um and also katie you brought up earlier and i i don't want to miss it but uh the therapist's office 
I know, I promise. We were going to talk about Sally Draper. We will. But um, uh, Dr. Wayne, uh, he's actually, he, he talked during Betty's uh, therapist session. Because like up until this point, he's literally just been sitting there writing away in his notebook, uh, you know, breaking confidentiality, which mm-hmm. I guess it, it technically didn't exist at this time. But uh, talking about these sessions with Don behind Betty's back. And he finally says something in here where we have this moment where you already touched on it, Katie, where Betty is talking about like, you know, her mother put all these expectations on her, you know, it it connects to Peggy's story in the sense that like, you know, this idea that she had to be slim to find a man, you know, that same sort of attitude that's being imposed upon Peggy. Right. And she's talking about her mother in this way and how her mother, you know, she couldn't make her mother happy because then she becomes a model because she's so beautiful uh, or at least like beautiful according to the standards, the societal conventions, we should say. And, you know, she's talking about it. And then, you know, her mother wasn't even happy about that. You know, she was just sort of like, even though she was in like a lucrative or a potentially lucrative career. And eventually, like the the therapist, I think, has had enough. I think maybe like it was the actor, you know, he was just like, I know I don't have any lines. But I got to get in on this. Like, you're angry at your mother. And, and Paul Feig was just like, keep it in, keep it in, keep going, you know. Um, but he loves improv, <laughs> as we know. That's right. That's I have a, a question. Yeah. I have a question about the therapist scenes. Like, I feel like maybe I missed something at some point. Um, like, is Don basically telling the therapist to just like keep her talking, or is it feels like he's unnecessarily holding back? Like that moment when he said, um, "Like, you're angry at your mom." Like that's what this is. And then when she turns it around on him, like, "Oh, you're talking now." Then he just goes right back to. <laughs> like just being like tell me more about that yeah yeah I, I i is he is he being directed by don to just keep her talking or is like what's going on i'm not I, th- I feel like i missed something i don't think so and they don't they don't explain it in a very overt way i think it's one of it, it's an essence of the time um i was a i was a psychology minor and so we did study like the history of psychology and how it kind of changed uh from where it used to be particularly in the early 19th century through you know the 20th century into today and that was kind of a common thing to just sort of like the psychoanalysis was very much like what you're seeing this sort of like just get them talking a ton and then you know it, it is still like a male dominated sort of like tell the husband what's going on uh does she need a lobotomy you know it's just like a very horrible thing um I think that's the implication, but I don't know, Will, if you okay. had a different take. Got it. Well, I was going to say, as far as this uh, therapy scene is concerned, uh, one thing I do find really fascinating about what Betty is talking about is that, uh, as a show is often discussed, these characters often feel very like boxed in or kind of trapped in their scenario. I know Matt Zollersice talks about that a decent bit in his book, uh, but with Betty, she kind of elaborates on the the history of her relationship with Don Draper and how like she was wooed in a way that's almost kind of reminiscent of the way that John is kind of trying to court Don into his office. Like I he, did know such you know, thing. kind of sees the talent. Was it? You said that I seduced Don oh, Draper. Sorry, was it? No, sir. It was, 
No, 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 no. John, the, the Jim. Sorry, sorry. I, I might have. Guardian slip. Sorry, John, Don, Jim. Mm. Sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Jim, sorry. Uh, I didn't mean to throw you under the rug, John. Uh, but Jim, uh, you know, he, he's courting Don by, you know, giving him these fancy golf clubs and, you know, uh, trying to woo him in any number of ways. And we, we learned that Don's relationship with Betty kind of began in a somewhat similar fashion where, she, you know, uh, is attracted to him, but wasn't really won over initially. And then, like, he kind of gave her the fur that she really liked in this box. And then, like, you know, eventually the relationship kind of came to be to the point where, like, uh, she feels she doesn't say it outright, but she she kind of suggests that she feels trapped into motherhood in a weird way. Like, not that she is resentful of it, but she feels kind of trapped into marriage and to into uh being a mother in a way that like now she feels old she feels out of step with like where she was before she's kind of lost the confidence that she might have had earlier when she was able to move away from her mother and kind of establish herself as a model and then i love that one scene uh when she's in the modeling office and we have that uh panning shot where we see like these younger models with like these sort of chic outfits that are kind you know a little bit more modern to the early 60s and we see betty in this like beautiful dress that i think came from that italian uh designer she used to work with um you know it's very beautiful but it is reminiscent of an older time yeah, the early 50s. And she really stands out because she yeah yeah and um yeah i mean she's like you know a woman who is by no means old like i mean she's you know still in her 20s and she's still you know has the potential to be a great model as we see from those photos but she you know is trapped by uh a dawn in this scenario because he is you know kind of lording his power uh into this thing where he i i mean you can kind of argue i guess as far as like whether or not dawn really takes uh this proposal seriously uh i know matt zorsice his thing said that like he's only really doing it to get a raise, which I think is true to an extent, but I think there is something to be said about how Don like really hits home with that Yankee analysis, you know, kind of similar to the hobo episode where, um, you know, he, uh, feels this desire to go to New York, kind of live, uh, and be in the big city and kind of, you know, go up and up. But obviously if he did that, that would go, uh, against his, you know, new identity and uh, make him an easy threat to be, uh, courted, but you know, Don is almost sort of trapped into this identity that he's created for himself, whereas Betty is trapped in a way where she has no real power in her own even uh, marriage and her personal life, let alone the professional life that she's trying to establish for herself. I think that's what makes the ending so cathartic. I mean, I know at one point, I think they mentioned that uh, Betty's nickname was Birdie at one point, which is a little like on the nose, but, but I do really like the idea the that like show. the birds. It's not right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, it didn't really hit for me until this episode, I suppose. Um, but, uh, you know, like the idea, like the birds, you know, as you mentioned, like they're kind of caged in and that they are out and free and that there's like a kind of beautiful irony and poeticism to like uh, Betty wanting to shoot the birds when they're all out and free. Because, you know, in a way that she's recognizing, you know, the, the freedom they have and kind of pushing against it but also finding her own freedom by sticking it to her neighbor who was you know resentful to sally draper well hold on bill because you 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 really you gave a lot and so i i I can't just let you you glide by with that thing about don and the mccann thing because 
I don't think he really, I, I think he was entertaining the proposal. I, I don't agree with Zoller side. Well, that's what I'm kind of saying. I, I think you say that too, but I think. Yeah, well, that's what I'm. Yeah. But I, I think that yeah. I got to, I, I got to really just maybe reiterate. I don't know, but I think for Don, he's looking at it like kind of like what I was saying before. It's like a cheat code. You know, he could go to McCann and sort of get what he would see as sort of like that's uh, the, the end, you know? I don't think he's worried about sort of uh, his identity and, and, you know, kind of getting thwarted or anything like that. I think what it comes down to is Don ultimately makes uh, a decision that has like multiple benefits. I think we've already kind of mentioned it. Katie's mentioned it. You know, the idea that Don is just sort of looking at the situation is, you know, this is a way for, you know, Betty to sort of stay where she is in like her mom sort of role. But then also, I think that he just sees the true definition of success for him is turning Sterling Cooper into a bigger thing instead of becoming like a, a cog in a machine. I think that's what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. And there was also, John, there was also a moment, this really stood out to me, um, where it was right after he saw the pictures of Betty and then he went to Roger, I think, or maybe he was on, I don't remember. I don't remember who he was talking to, but he said something like, this is not how I want to do business. I, I, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Well, he tells, he tells Roger like, you know, I don't like the way that they do business. And then he, yeah. after that, talks to Jim Hobart and it's just like, that wasn't a big league move or something to that effect. Yeah. It seemed like he was offended that that was yeah. like he, Jim had used his wife to sort of court him into taking this position with their company. And that felt like a moment, like Don does a lot of other things that I don't necessarily agree with, but this felt like a moment where he was sticking to his like convent convictions. Um, and there was like a line for him, um, that he may be getting an, a thing out of it with like Betty continuing to be a mother for his children. But at the same time, I thought he also had like a line in business that he was not going to cross. And I thought that was yeah. interesting and provided me as someone who has not seen the rest of the show, just these nine episodes, a really good insight into him as a character. Yeah. And, and their marriage too, because this is one of this episode is one of the happiest we've seen these two together. You know, there's a lot of like genuine camaraderie between Don and Betty here. You know, he's been horrible to her. Like in red in the face, he was, you know, this is a different Don from that episode. Like that Don was like vindictive and, you know, like lashing out at her and, you know, really coming close to domestic violence. In this episode, he's just sort of like, well, I can't make you do what you don't want to do. You know, he's kind of trying to like, you know, be a little bit more amicable, but also he clearly isn't happy with what she's doing, but is also kind of like rolling with it a little bit. And to the point where when she like gets the call that she's going to be the girl with the cola, she seduces him right in the living room. And like, there's, there are all kinds of like little moments where it's like things are kind of clicking with these two. And I think that's all pretty intentional, pretty purposeful. I thought, um, yeah, I was really like, I kept waiting for Dawn to push back on everything she was saying she wanted to do. But also another really great Betty moment is like when she is like setting the table uh, for dinner, I think. And that's the first time she tells him that she wants to go back to modeling and she never asks him if that's okay. She just says that she's going to do it, which I really loved and also really love that he never like questions her on it. 
and is always it, he seems to be being supportive i kept waiting for like the more explicit like pushback but he didn't give it but also like you could i think you could tell that he was maybe he wasn't super happy about it but yeah. he also wasn't telling her not to it was like quasi supportive but like it was kind of passive aggressive yeah. Yeah, which in a show like this, I will take that. <laughs> yeah, after everything we've seen, it's definitely like, whoa, Don, boyfriend of the year, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Ideally, it would be like, yeah, great, sounds good. Do what you want. Oh my gosh, that's I amazing. I support yeah, you. No, it's a little bit more of just like... Yeah, no, instead it's just going to be this quiet like nod across the dinner table of like, okay, as long as you think you're doing the right thing. <laughs> As far as uh, Don's uh, reaction to Betty's uh, desire to go into modeling again, I, I was kind of wondering if it was him uh, recognizing that was Jim's like ploy in a way to, you know, get him into the business. Like, I, I think he's almost like acknowledging directly that like he knows that Betty's happy by this. He's not trying to push away from her happiness, but he's also recognizing that like this is just another way that he's trying to court Dawn into getting into this uh, position that he's, you know, hesitant at best to get into. As we mentioned, like, I don't think he is resistant entirely to wanting to go to this company. I think certainly desire to, to be in a bigger office, to be with all these powerful clients, to, you know, be among the high top, you know, top brass of uh, the advertising world is obviously going to be very appealing to him. But, you know, like money is something that doesn't really uh this money is a big object for Don, as we have set, as seen in like two episodes already. Like he's pretty willing to give away any bonuses and whatever that he gets. So I don't think it's just a, a simple desire for him to want to get a raise, but I think it's more about him kind of just trying to push the power that he has in his own little box yeah. here at Sterling Cooper, re- recognizing that like, he has the the wiggle room in this company to kind of be the self-made man that he is, you know, someone who can lord his power over his company, but not be pressured into being something bigger than he is. He is a self-made man, but he is someone who does have these humble roots, someone who isn't from this kind of upper class upbringing. He's not someone who sees himself rising all the way to tip, tip top of the, the business ladder. He's pretty happy where he is, but he does kind of want to, you know, loosen the buckle a bit in the position of power that he is already in. There's um, that moment, too, you know, where things are kind of happy, right? But, you know, Sally walks in. She had a bad dream. And it occurs to Don that there was this moment while Betty was out on her shoot, um, you know, the name of the episode, shoot, photo shoot, shooting the BB gun. Anybody can get that. Mm-hmm. But you Also, know. um Peggy is shooting from the hip when she's talking to Joan. I don't know if that, that one's a stretch. I know, but I, I wanted to say that too. Um, yeah, that's, you're right. You know, well, and I would never hold that back from you. Um, you're allowed to embarrass yourself. I'm just kidding. Um, but no, Don, Don clearly like it, it starts to break a little bit for him when, you know, Sally comes in and we find out, you know, she, she's talking about how this all happened. Ethel was like asleep and, this traumatizing thing happened to Sally and you can tell that it's sort of triggered something in Don because he, you know, had a terrible childhood. He felt like he, you know, was traumatized on a daily basis. And clearly that is one of his priorities. Like, as you were talking about, like, it's not really money, right? He is, he is kind of like viewing his life. I think he does have a sincere 
wish for his kids to have a good mother and everything, but he's also well, yeah. a broken human being at the same time. Well, I mean, that's what's also fascinating about, like, like we've been mentioning, the parallels between Don and Betty, not only in their lives, but in this episode, where, like, they both have been scarred and traumatized by their own upbringing. Certainly, Don was so, you know, devastated by his Depression-era upbringing that he changed his whole identity uh, and, you know, outcasted his loving brother. And then Betty, uh, you know, is, is someone who, you know, as we've learned already, like, has pretty intense loathing for her mother and the, like, emotional trauma that she is uh, inflicted upon her, you know, forcing her to kind of be this woman that, you know, she's not really comfortable and being. And she can't even get closure and, you know, because even though, her mother passed away right right? and so yeah right but yeah i mean i think the beauty and the complexity of her character here is that like being in motherhood is both kind of a curse and a blessing for betty in this episode because you know while she's you know not really able to be the model uh and self-dependent woman that she wants to be she is able to be the better mother than her mother ever was and she you know we see this episode where like she is kind of going back to this like kind of idyllic scenario where it's like it almost feels like something out of commercial where we see in these last couple shots her like loving her kids like folding the laundry lovingly and all this stuff like it's almost too perfect in a way and maybe it is a lie but for her betty is going to do everything she can to make that a reality because you know she genuinely loves her kids and also she just clearly wants to be the loving supporting mother that her mother never was and that includes you know shooting the birds that uh, it, you know, her neighbor that traumatized her daughter have been floating above her house. And, you know, it's a kind of uh, ironic and beautiful moment that, I, as we mentioned, I think just makes the ending of this episode so fantastic. Now, I, I don't want to just skip over Sally Draper. We keep trying. But I think what's you know interesting, I want to go back to the bed scene, you know, where she comes in and she's getting comforted. It's it's a lot of Kieran and Shipka acting in this. Uh, we're getting more Sally than usual. Like she actually gets multiple lines. She's telling her story and everything. And I bring this. Wait, sorry, mm-hmm. that's Kieran and Shipka. Yeah. Yep. Oh my god, I did not realize. That. And you know what I was about to bring up, Kieran and Shipka, who is who said very recently that she's not done playing Sally Draper. Uh, she would actually, she actually really oh. wants to play the role again. Um, and all I'm saying is Mad Men 1970s, directed by Katie Stetzel. Um, side note, I've interviewed Kieran Shipka before. Actually, like quite recently, she's really nice. What was she like? Well, that's cool. I mean, it was literally she's, five minutes yeah. on the Zoom, but she did tell me <laughs> that my question was really good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> What was it for? Because uh, so, Sabrina's you know. not still going on, right? So is there something else? No, it was for uh, um, Swimming with Sharks. Swimming with Sharks? Yeah. She's been yeah, doing yeah. what? Mm-hmm. Wait until I tell her mother about this. <laughs> In this economy? <laughs> wow. So, okay. So I didn't realize that was Kieran Shipka. That's her. I, I, was trying to, I was trying to decide what, it, what I wanted to say about that scene and some of this is coming from like previous episodes which i obviously wasn't here to discuss but like i and you've got you guys have probably already discussed this but i kind of wanted to bring it up because it was on my mind during the scene like when she comes in to be comforted by her parents um i'm always like on edge on like how don is going to react to his daughter for two reasons there was that birthday episode when he totally just dips and doesn't bring her her birthday yeah. cake. And that was that was a hard line for me. I was like, okay, I'm firmly 
like you you're in the doghouse forever because of this you don't bring your daughter a birthday cake on her birthday like uh, sorry was, you're done uh, <laughs> was the dog house thing uh intentional yeah, pun? i hope <laughs> because he brought a dog i don't know hashtag don draper Probably. is over okay, party. yeah 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 and then the other one was um this is like a just a line of dialogue but like i don't remember when it is maybe it was in the same episode but he like comes in and like shouts at betty to like have the girl do the dishes <laughs> referring to his daughter well i think uh, no he's referring to the nanny oh is he yeah they have wait they have a nanny well they have they have a uh, ethel who kind of like watches oh ethel um, and then I think that, uh, Betty has referenced a couple of times that they have a girl who comes in some days, uh, to kind of like do some like housework. Oh, okay. All right. Still a terrible line of dialogue, yeah, yeah. but that does like sort of, <laughs> cause he's not saying about, not just not saying about his daughter, but like literally like <laughs> recontextualizes yeah. that line. Yeah. This whole time I was like, did he just refer to his daughter as the girl and also force her to do the dishes? He for that girl. Anyway, okay. Oh, terrible. Still, um, the birthday cake thing is still like on my mind, though. Um, and also at the end of episode eight, he like wakes up his son and not his daughter, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, and I think that was connecting mm-hmm. right to the hobo code thing, where he was seeing himself at, like, mm-hmm. I think one of the first times he saw himself as, you know, the son in the scenario that he was in when he, you know, he first realized, like, his father was a dishonest man, and, like, frantic, he goes to Bobby to try to sort of almost experiment with this idea of how, like, Bobby, you know, doesn't view him that way, you know, like, oh, you can ask mm-hmm. me anything, you know, it's like a yeah. desperation of, like, validation that he has and obviously he like he doesn't have the self-awareness to see of course that like he has his firstborn daughter you know who's older and you know yeah he has those experiences with it shouldn't matter but yeah um there's only one other thing i wanted i wanted to get to we've really covered it uh, but the last thing i have and we got to do it it's fan service well, and by fan service i mean the one fan okay. being will ashen um we get a salvatore hmm. romano right. quote in well, this um <laughs> yeah we see jackie kennedy well, I was gonna, yeah mm-hmm. i know i mean the joke i was gonna make about the uh scene before was like dawn you know like being woken up by sally she's like scared had a dream and then like half awake just kind of mutters like fireflies or chemical reaction inside <laughs> their body lies and lies. like daddy what are you talking about yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh! Um, so uh, no, no, we get the, a little bit of salad. Anyway. We get one scene basically. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the they're watching the Kennedy uh, Jackie Kennedy truly, commercial, right? Where she's speaking. Yeah, Spanish. truly unprecedented for the time um, for a political ad. You know, for an election to have you know somebody like really targeting and speaking directly to the Hispanic demographic, which in this time is of course growing quite a bit. And they're all kind of pontificating on, you know, how they can get the Nixon people to resort to them, right? And I mean, this leads to what we've already talked about with Pete and Harry kind of cooking up their little scheme. But it was it's during this scene that everyone's kind of like sh- shooting ideas. Pete kind of like reneged a little bit on the whole like Nixon's up by eight points, even though a couple episodes ago he was sort of he was the one who was kind of looking ahead and being like, well, you know, Kennedy has a chance, and it it is kind of interesting how he sort of like, you know chases i think uh 
approval a little bit. Like he's kind of, he's like, okay, maybe you're right. And then he sticks by that. And then mm-hmm. Don is just like, that's not, you know, eight points that ain't big, much. Mm-hmm. That big power of flops what that man is. <laughs> right. But then, uh, yeah, Sal is just, he's talking about how he thinks women will be, you know, they're going to hate Jackie Kennedy um, because they, you know, they're, it's like they're, he says, it's like their better looking sister married a handsome senator and now she's going to live in the White House. I'm practically jealous. And yeah. Hell, I thought it was, hell, I'm practically jealous. I'm Wasn't practically it? Like, whatever. And we also see Lois in this episode and it, it looks like she's, you know, she's kind of chilled out a little bit, right? Like she's not quite as, like, I think she went to the bowling team. And, you know, was able to bowl a little bit, meet a couple boys, and then she's not as uh, sweaty for Sal in uh, this whole thing. Can, can I just say that Sal is, like, a big reason why I really loved episode eight? And I was like, dang it, I wish I was on to talk about episode eight. Well, what do you, what do you oh, want to say? Because I feel like we're, we're about to wind this down, so... Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm always for more Sal talk, so please Because either ahead. that or we talk I... about the, how the sequel laxative people don't have a sense of humor... <laughs> um i just really loved sal well episode eight was like the first time they really focused on sal and this whole time maybe i wasn't just picking i don't know this whole time i thought he was like comfortable in his sexuality but it wasn't until he was like with i don't remember the other guy's name and he was it's elliot he like you gotta see the view you can see all the way to the park (laughs) Yeah, what was that guy's name? He had kind of a weird vibe. Uh, the actor, I don't know. I don't the the character's name. name is Elliot. Elliot, yeah. So when he like rejects Elliot's advance, um, and he was, he was like, "No, I can't." And then he was like, "Like, what is there to be scared of?" And he's I'll like, "What you. are you, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> all of society." That was, yeah. That was like a big moment because I didn't, I hadn't picked up. Like, obviously, he was in the closet, but I thought also he was, like, comfortable with himself, but obviously not. Right. So. Especially because they preface that whole thing, right, with him being, like, his ambitions. You know, he wants to start an agency mm -hmm. and do all that stuff. And it's like, he just views his personal life, unfortunately, and rightfully for the time, as, like, a hindrance to that. Yeah. So, I instantly found him, like, super fascinating and, like, can't wait to watch his story. But in this episode, in episode nine, which I'm actually here to talk about, um, he didn't get a whole lot to do, and I was disappointed. It's one line. <laughs> but we got, his, we got Ronnie Gittrich, you know, who kind of a similar, you know, also an art director and uh, also my brother-in-law. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and th- there was also that whole thing, too, where, like, Betty was talking about the guy she knew in Italy, who she was like, oh, it was platonic. And you could read it one of two ways, I guess. Um, I was like, was it platonic? Because yet again, you know, a, you know, somebody who was, is homosexual and Betty just didn't pick up on it or whatever. Um, or was it a situation where maybe she did have a sexual relationship with him, but of course would never say that, uh, especially to Francine. She's such a goss. Um, I don't know what it is, but uh, either way, it's uh, I left ambiguous on purpose, I suppose. All right. Any last things? I we, we covered quite a bit. Of, uh, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to bring up before we say goodbye and goodnight. I mean, I have a few things, but I want Katie to uh, speak first. I don't think I have anything. I did take notes on my notes app on my phone, but I don't think I think I, f- I feel like we basically covered everything. Very cool. We didn't talk about John Slattery right. in this. Uh, we didn't talk about Roger. He gets two scenes, but uh, mm-hmm. they're pretty. I was they're functional scenes. 
I was like glad to see him again. Yeah. I thought it was funny that he first appears with like he's like reluctantly dragging around those golf clubs. Yeah. <laughs> he just kind of like slouches into Don's office. Definitely a different Roger than we've seen we saw in Red in the Face as well. You know, it's almost like two different shows. You know, he's he's like you're one in a million, Draper. He, you know what it really is. He he doesn't want his friend to yeah. leave. I can relate with that. I've had coworkers <laughs> leave, yep. and I've been like, name your price. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, a few things I just wanted to say since we're wrapping up that I didn't get to discuss before is um, I did really appreciate kind of going back to the the Sally thing with the dog and the pigeons. Uh, the irony of um, the dog being something that uh dog or dog being something that don brought to the family and the idea that like the dog being something that don you know kind of thrusted into the family by force another gift that uh don brought to the family is kind of the, the thing that is uh shackling this bird and you know kind of adding to the whole metaphor of betty's right. whole don, the dog uh, dilemma in this don, episode right? and her conflict uh somewhat indirectly with her husband um, but also, I just wanted to say that uh, um, they, they constantly bring up uh, Grace Kelly as a comparison point to uh, Betty is like, you know, having this kind of Grace Kelly type persona. And then, you know, like uh, as Matt Zollerseis brings up in his book, this is kind of the era of Aubrey Hepburn. Right. We're about to get breakfast uh, you know, at a Tiffany's a year woman later. As opposed to Grace Kelly. Mm-hmm. Can't wait. Yeah. And, you know, like, you know, Grace Kelly, you know, is another, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, beautiful uh you know a woman who proven herself many times but she is a woman that did come from wealth and you know married a you know famous husband and kind of gradually uh graced her way out of uh, acting no pun intended um and you know that's you know kind of mirroring betty's arc in this episode that's something matt brought up in the book and i i thought that was very relevant to discuss also i just really appreciated that Betty constantly was just like, I used to be a model, you know, <laughs> uh, I thought we'd discuss that earlier, but just like her constantly, it reminds me of uh, Pete's like a thing like that, yeah, yeah. you know, his, his, she just has like a little catchphrase in this episode. And then I just wanted to end with, um, I think my favorite line of dialogue in this episode, which I was hoping to discuss when, um, you know, Roger and Don have their kind of heart to heart where Don talks about, you know, basically he's, his heart never really is in advertising outside of like, you know, he, he likes the luxury of it. I think he likes the opportunities to provide, but he's not someone who's really chasing the cloud of it. If, if anything, he's kind of like looking to find peace outside of it. And, um, you know, Roger is just so headstrong into the business life. He, it practically seems like he was like born wearing a suit uh, and he says, uh, let me pull it up. Uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of men like you. And if I, if you had to choose a good place to die, it would be in the middle of a pitch. And then Don saying, I've done that. I want to do something else, which I thought was a really great line. You know, the idea of, you know, dying in a pitch, but also, you know, yeah, I don't know. I really like that line. I just kind of wanted to bring it up. I didn't have a greater point about it, but, uh, it felt remiss not mentioning it. Well, okay. I also have a line of dialogue that I really liked, but I didn't didn't know how to throw it in there. It better not be the lobster random. one, Katie, because that was very mean on Ken's part. I don't. I was going to say Ken's a, not a great guy in this episode. Your boy Ken. I know he regressed. Wait, who's Ken? Ken Cosgrove accounts. He he says the whole thing. Is he the one that he calls Peggy is Ken a the lobster? One that has published two. Is he the one that has published two novels? Yeah. 
or well, he's written two novels. He published a short story oh, right. in Atlantic, yeah. and he gets sucker punch. Yeah, by Pete. I was disappointed by him this episode too, because <laughs> I, I thought he'd been pretty decent up till now. He was coming around, but uh, anyway, yeah. um, the line of dialogue that I really liked, I think it just because of like syntax and like structure of the line and also just the way he said it. What is his name? Like the director of the commercial or photo shoot? Ronnie Gitridge. Yeah, that guy. When he um first meets Betty, he goes, I'm overwhelmed with the style of you. Yeah. And I thought that was so nice. <laughs> and he also says that like it has nothing to do with you. And like when when she's fired mm-hmm. from it, right? And he's right. But it's also that's what stinks. Yeah. You know, and I, it, it's unclear yeah. whether or not how much he knows, you know, and I'm sure he does, but it's, you know, yeah, he still shows her a little bit of yeah, humanity. It, yeah, I don't think he was like super patronizing. I think the most patronizing he was in that was like the two photos <laughs> that you can use. To <laughs> yeah, it was he was kind of handling whatever. her a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, anyway, it's, I mean, I do also got to mention uh, the pettiness of Jim being like, it's a shame to lose both of yeah. you, you know, like try to kind of throw things some last minute power. Yeah. And, you know, I, I mean, Don knew that was going to happen, but you know, just that the, the sheer pettiness on Jim's part, to just kind of throw Betty under the bus just because he lost Don as a would be client, you know, not a great guy. That Keep Jim. in mind too, you know, the Audrey Hepburn thing does relate, you know, to the Jackie Kennedy thing. Um, it's a very clear comparison. Uh, I mean, Audrey Hepburn had already been in Roman Holly yeah. years before this. But it's like you said, the 60s were the right. era of Hepburn. At this point, I think Grace Kelly's last film was years before this. Um, and yeah, it definitely is all very purposeful. I think Zoller Seitz kind oh. of mentions that too, of how like it is such a like mm-hmm. clear distinction that they're making between, you know, Betty being the sort of like person of the 50s, um, particularly with that dress, you know, and how she's going into the 60s sort of like outside of like that norm and there, there's another right. there's another actress the show kind of gets into with this comparison but i'm not going to give it away because why would i you know that's that's season two material mm-hmm. john did i tell you that i recently watched charade for the first time speaking of you Aubrey watched Hepburn, i watched the movie charade did you really what'd you think yeah really great movie i gotta say i like that One movie a lot uh and aubrey hepburn you know just what a what a beautiful and dynamic star like truly one of the great movie stars ever. Like you just see her and you're like, that I is recommend a, a documentary about in a way her life I, and you know, what she went through. And uh, I think that oh, really? I, which, uh, it's documentary called Audrey. I think it's on Hulu and it gets into like the book, the okay. Mad Men's carousel kind of talks too about like her upbringing and like how, you know, she was like alive during the blitz mm-hmm. and everything during world war two. And right. uh, it's, it's very good. And it gets into like what she did after her acting career, you know, and like a lot of the philanthropy she did, which is very mm-hmm. uh, respectable oh, stuff. Okay. So cool. Yeah. Uh, isn't a uh, Rooney Mara playing Aubrey Hepburn in a biopic? I wouldn't soon. be surprised. I, hear that? I feel so, like you could tell me that and be like, it I happened mean, and it came out three years ago. And I'd be like, you're right. Sure. I just think it's funny that like, Lily Collins was like almost born. To I was about play, to say, like Aubrey Hepburn. I feel like that's like, been like a thing, right? Of yeah. like, it, it's kind of like how everyone's getting Julie Gardner to play uh, Madonna, you know, like Dead Ringer. But right. yeah, it says here. Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly in, in, an inspired choice for sure for that movie. It says here that uh, she's going to play um, Audrey Hepburn in uh, something with Apple. So it looks like it's going to happen, and it's going to be Luca Guadagnino. Yeah, I, I think I did hear about that. 
Oh, Luca yeah, Guadagnino. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I did hear that. I knew there's some big name director attached to it. That's going to be. Yeah, I, good. I agree. I'm excited about it. So yeah. let's find out. Uh, Katie, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> no, sorry. I've okay. I've not seen any Audrey Hepburn movie. <laughs> not yet. Oh, really? We're going wow. yeah. to radicalize uh, Katie. <laughs> I mean, definitely uh, Roman Holiday is a fantastic. Katie's going to be with her uh, therapist and be like, so these guys are getting uh, me to watch Mad Men and Audrey Hopper, Hepburn <laughs> stuff. I don't know what to do. I can't shake. Audrey Hepburn, yeah. These guys, pretty, yeah. And also anime, like they got me into anime shit. That's mostly Alex. Well, that wasn't fault. me. Uh, and I guess I take a lot it of was all, too. It was all of you because <laughs> all of you put it on your stupid I, mid-year list. And uh, I was like, what is, the fuck is this show <laughs> that everyone I, is watching except me? I, but you did watch it, right? I mean, John knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John knows I am not about the anime. <laughs> uh, it's one of your few but, flaws, yeah. Will. One of the, one uh, of the, I guess so. I mean, single digits, obviously, when it comes to yeah. your flaws, and that's nope. one of the select few. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's very sweet of you. We never talked about the the anime influences in Nope. Yeah, we did in our review. Which we talked is, about. Akira, this comment's going to be super out when this episode comes out. What are you talking about? Why are you bringing? Oh, did we talk about like Evangelicon Evangelion. and all that stuff? <laughs> Evangelion. Sorry, Evangelion. I feel like we didn't get a lot of tirades in this episode, so I'm just throwing them <laughs> I all. Think at that's the a end sign here. that we need to cut this off. So. Thank you for listening to Mad Men Men. Uh, is there anything we did miss about the episode? Any tidbits, any analysis, or something kind of fun uh, that we missed talking about? Let us know. Uh, hit us up on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter, we have one now. It's at Mad Men Men Pod. Uh, or you can just use the comment section on the young folks or follow any of us on Twitter. Our Twitters are going to be in the show notes of this episode, of course. Katie, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything you want to plug? You know, like we're going to have your Twitter in there. You're obviously doing great TV stuff at the young folks. What, anything else though? Uh, no, probably just all of, all of the young folks stuff, yeah, just, especially just under the in. TV. Section. Yeah. Yeah. Type, yeah. You're just like, don't even go to the I homepage. Mean, Why bother? Go to the TV features. Yeah. yeah. Just skip to the TV section. Yeah. There's good stuff there. I mean, recently all of the mid-year lists are out. I feel like that's the most recent big thing. Um, and there's like good stuff yeah. if you're looking for something to binge by this time this comes out I think we're it's going to be like full on peak fall season so it'll be a great time oh yeah that's yeah. right I forgot you're yeah you're like a few weeks ahead yeah so I guess by then hopefully we'll have a bunch of cool fall content because fall fall is like the best time for TV yeah. so 365 days a year yeah there you go mm-hmm. 